Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. everybody to another edition of the end game joining me as always one of the other the statler to my waldorf bill fleckenstein hi mate how are you i'm fine mate how are you i am good how's the uh, california sunshine treating you it's just fine and how's the jet lag treating you <laughs> like someone it wants to get rid of in a hurry let me tell you it's not it's not good it's not fun but you know what is fun uh, the conversation we're about to have because uh we have someone joining us that you and I have been dying to get on the podcast for some time now, uh, Michael Cow. And uh, anyone that follows Twitter has probably come across his threads, even if you're not sure who he is. Anyone that follows him, I'm sure there are people sitting by their computers waiting for his next thread because they're always just fantastically thought out, fantastically conceived and and stir up a hornet's nest every time. So we're, you know, we're, we're thrilled to get a chance to talk to him. Yep. They're thought-provoking without making anyone angry. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, listen, there are people who get angry no matter what, but I think he does as good a job as you can at kind of mitigating that, bless him. Well, what do you say we, uh, what do you say we bring him on, Bill? Let's do it. Michael, welcome to the Endgame. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure for both of us to have you with us. Oh, likewise. I'm really flattered that you guys would uh, invite me onto your show and uh, very been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, we got to, I mean, there, there is so much to talk about and you've been so prolific on Twitter and, and some of your uh, stuff on there has just been just such a, a great asset, I think, for people who are trying to figure out an awful lot of important stuff. And, and the place I'd like to start, I know Bill's got places he wants to go, but I'm going to save those for now because I know exactly where he wants to go given what's been happening the last couple of weeks. But um, I'd love to start with the dollar if I can because it, it's kind of the key to everything, it seems. Everything's kind of floating around it. And you, you wrote an epic thread about the dollar wrecking ball a while ago. So what I'd, I'd love for you to do, if you can, to kick off is is kind of lay that thread out for people. And, and talk about your views on the dollar because we've had you know we've had guys on the podcast with differing views, all of them elegantly laid out, and you know it, it's tough to find an answer, but it's really easy to find really thoughtful guys on both sides of the debate, which is always you know, fantastic if a little confusing. So, give us your dollar theory, and then and then we'll kind of kick that around if we can. Sure. So I actually came at this not from looking at the uh, the dollar, but actually looking at oil. You know, I've been involved in the oil trade for a number of years now. Uh, so I, I pay a lot of attention to the macro fundamentals of oil and basically recognize that, you know, this time is a little bit different because we are in a long-term structural bull market in oil. The, the recent Ukraine-Russia conflict has certainly obfuscated certain parts of it but i think the long term thesis that you know we are 7 years into what i'll call like a long term capital starvation um, of this of this industry uh, that's been greatly exacerbated over the last few years by um, this focus on esg at all costs it's created this dynamic where it's not clear that even a mild recession can demand destruct our way out of a pretty severe energy crisis and a commodity inflation. So it was that as the centerpiece of my analysis that led me to think, okay, well, what are the other macro ramifications of this? 
And so I guess early last year, I think March of last year, I wrote a thread called the commodity price inflation butterfly, how this structural situation in oil would effectively create a very uncomfortable situation for the Fed and frankly, all the central banks around the world in becoming much more hawkish. And you know, if, if you recall, like just six or nine months ago, it was very much a anti-consensus view, right? I think a lot of folks thought that the Fed could not have the capacity to certainly consider the amount of hikes that, that are now, you know, arguably priced into the curve. But here we are, right? And so now I'm kind of leading to my, my theory on the dollar. The other thing is that the Fed has been way ahead of the curve in terms of monetary stimulus, both temporally as well as in abundance in terms of dealing with COVID. But now it, we are now on the backside of that, right? So we are about to unwind this record, you know, $3 trillion or $4 trillion expansion of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And we're about to unwind it faster than the rest of the world. And so I think that is what originally led me to write the first wrecking ball thread back in December. And then this latest one that you may be referring to, this one that I call the wrecking ball world tour was really just to show that the DXY as perhaps like the best measure of uh, the dollar against, you know, a basket of other fiat uh, currencies has neared basically pre-COVID highs. You know, the DXY was near 100 before all of this epic COVID QE. Then it fell to 90. And then now it's just crested 100 again before QT really has even started. And of course, you could argue, okay, well, you know, maybe it's already pricing in a lot of forward QT, et cetera. Well, except that when the DXY went the other way, it was relatively coincident with the actual QE. So I wonder whether, you know, there's certainly some amount of forward pricing going on in this DXY, but I think it's also indicating a lack of real alternatives. So maybe I'll just stop there because I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but the big debate right now is, you know, whether or not this weaponization of the dollar is going to lead to some, you know, Bretton Woods 3 or some new regime. And I'm just really not seeing the alternatives right now to the USD for the foreseeable future. Well, let me ask you a question about that. When you refer to it as weaponization, weaponization implies to me that, you know, the dollar is the strongest thing amongst a bunch of strong players when it's more to me like it's the proverbial least dirty shirt, so to speak. And while that doesn't change the fact that it's going to go up versus the others, I think the connotation is somewhat different. It's not like people are saying, wow, the way they're handling things in the States is so spectacular. We really need to be long the USD. Monetary policy in Japan and Europe is a train wreck to pick the two biggest uh, next to us. And of course, the one doesn't really count, I don't think. So it's like it's the one-eyed man in the land of the blind. Um, Do you think there's something special uh, about it besides the fact that it it is the world's reserve currency and we are the least bad? Am I being too negative in how I'm stating it? 
Well, I mean, look, there was another thread I wrote a while ago. I think I titled it uh, this hyperinflation, hyperventilation, and why like geographic assets also matter. Look, I spent most of my career actually studying micro, right? The individual balance sheets of companies as opposed to paying attention to macro. I only had to really force myself to start paying attention to macro matters when I got involved in, you know, energy related uh, investments about seven years ago. But the reason why I think that's relevant is because if you look at what makes a fiat currency worthy of, you know, safety and soundness and worthy of global reserve currency status, it's a whole host of features. It is not just one metric like debt to GDP. There's a lot of, you know, uh, Sturm and Angst over, you know, we're at 130% debt to GDP and look at what happened in Weimar, Germany, et cetera, et cetera. But first of all, debt is a measure of stock. GDP is a measure of flow. You have to also consider what is the national balance sheet, right, of the United States. And so in that thread, I looked at a lot of the geographic assets that, for instance, the geopolitics expert Peter Zahan and Tim Marshall would talk about, which is, you know, our natural river network, our two oceanic buffers. How do you put a price on the entire Louisiana territory? I mean, there used to be a price on it, but now that entire area in terms of like the cheap natural river advantages. I mean, I think the U.S. has something like 17,000 river networks compared to the entire rest of the world's like 3,000 or something like that. And then if you consider our closest hegemonic rival, China, you could argue that China's riverine network is actually a liability as opposed to an asset. So there are all these other factors that are, I guess you could say, they're harder to quantify. And not to mention our Midwest has by far the largest contiguous amount of arable land in the world. And if you compare the amount of arable land that we have versus our population versus what China has, there's not even a comparison, right? So my point is that, you know, debt to GDP, our national, natural geographic advantages confer a safety and soundness to the currency that actually allow us to have to allow our currency and our country to weather a lot of policy mistakes and bad decisions, quite frankly. And so I have no argument with the decisions that have been made over the last several decades that have led to where we are, where we have essentially hollowed out our manufacturing capacity and subsidized you know, global maritime security that's basically allowed countries like China to essentially massively benefit at our expense. But I will argue that those natural advantages that we have that China is so desperately trying to recreate through One Belt, One Road are a huge advantage. These One Belt, One Road initiatives, just in terms of energy alone, tell you how difficult it is for China to get to where we are naturally. We're not alone in the world in terms of being long shale deposits, but what allowed the shale revolution to happen here in the United States versus other parts of the world is the confluence of not only the shale deposits, but abundant water supply, good 
laws, property laws that allow private operators to benefit from the mineral rights as opposed to, you know, the state taking all of the benefits. So there are a lot more factors that go into the safety and soundness of a currency than just debt to GDP metrics. So I'm trying to take a very, very holistic approach, looking at it qualitatively as well as quantitatively. And I just don't see a close competitor. I mean, you talked about the euro, right? I mean, I've always wondered whether or not long-term monetary union is even possible without political union. And, you know, several years ago, we had a bit of a crisis. I can see, I mean, I'm kind of watching this uh, Le Pen resurgence in the French polls with some trepidation with respect to the euro, because I'm wondering whether this Ukraine-Russia war is bringing back to the forefront all these conflicting agendas between all the different countries in the eurozone. And so, you know, if you consider the euro as possibly the most successful experiment thus far to establish a credible competitor to the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency, well, I think the probability today of a euro fracture is higher than it was three months ago. Michael, let me ask you, because I, you know, I, I can't find fault with anything you say, and, that, and that's why I find this, t- this topic so interesting. But the, the other part of this that um, I'm curious about, and that when Bill talked about weaponizing the US dollar, this idea that the demise of the dollar happens overnight obviously doesn't happen. It's a shift in thinking at the margins that begins to kind of creep towards the center. Now, the, the move to sanction the Russian central bank, as I see it, and I'm, I'd be delighted for you to tell me where I'm misthinking about this, but you know, I look at that and my first reaction when I saw that was that if you are a central banker and you own dollar reserves, you are absolutely derelict if you just sit on them thinking they're safe and we're okay, we're never going to get labelled a bad actor for anything we do. And also the when you talked about one of the big advantages of the US being the rule of law, again, and I've had this conversation with a few people and I'm curious to get your view on it, this sanctioning of individuals who happen to be friends of Putin or there's a picture of them shaking his hand in the Kremlin, you know, the confiscation of assets without due process, um, again, seems to me something that is going to make people think twice about holding assets in the US, in US dollars, from all the countries that might one day be tagged as bad actors. Do those two moves change things in the way I believe they do, or am I smoking something? Well, look, at, at the margins, I would say, yeah, at the margins, you can make that argument that you know if you are uh, President Xi, or you are Putin, or if you are Iran, or you're North Korea, you really have to wonder, or, or maybe if you're Saudi Arabia, even on the gray zone of friendly or, or hostile, you might wonder about that. But then I come back to the relative argument, right? So what state would you trust above the US at this point? Right. So you take a country like China, for instance, that basically established a rule that kids can't play video games or a social score on monitoring people for all kinds of arbitrary measures. I mean, so at the end of the day here, the U.S. 
central bank placed sanctions on a country that invaded another sovereign and without putting moral judgments on whether that invasion was justified. It certainly was justified from Putin's perspective, but in most of the world's eyes, it was a, a violation of sovereign territory. Well, are the sanctions there more or less arbitrary than what might be put on an unfriendly to China if the shoe were on right. the other foot? You know what I mean? So it's a relative thing. I don't buy this whole argument that you know somehow because the U.S. flexed here and sanctioned Russia, that all of a sudden uh, that means that China or Russia or Iran present some kind of altruistic alternative. There is no, no. there. But 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 doesn't it? I mean. It's an interesting uh, kind of a conundrum because by us doing something that could easily be seen as unreasonable confiscation, it would have to make you think twice about about putting money here, if, especially if you're some of the countries in the gray area, like Saudi Arabia is a great example that, that you mentioned. Yes. Right. Um, but on the other hand, because I'm a little bit nervous about the U.S., doesn't make me want to buy yen, euros, or yuan. Right. Um, it, it seems to That's me it. like as I look at it, it makes me want to, to do something else. I'm not sure as I look around the globe and obviously for an individual, you know, any currency is deep enough. If you're a government, it, you know, there aren't any. But if you look around the globe, there aren't any really good choices about the best thing I could come up with was the Norwegian kroner and, and, <laughs> and uh, for a group of reasons. But Obviously, no one can really buy that at any kind of size. I mean, so I think maybe the undermine has occurred because you'd have to make a certain number of people think twice. I don't know that it plays to an advantage of another currency. It might play to an advantage of another way to hold your dollars. Perhaps it's even better for gold. I'm not saying that it is, but that's that's what I would be thinking. I mean, you know, I read um, Zoltan's piece, and I think his recommendation is an interesting one about having, you know, a potential reserve currency that's based upon a commodity basket, as well as a group of fiat. The only thing is, it's not a new idea, right? I mean, we've had the SDR, we've had the Bancor. I mean, these things have all been tried. And I guess my view is that it comes down to network effects in a way, right? And the same arguments that the Bitcoin maxis can make about network effects, I can make in terms of the US dollar writ large, writ much larger, right? And it's a lot easier to demonetize gold and go into fiat. It's a lot harder to go the other way, much, much harder, right? Where you've got the entire world's banking systems based on a fractional reserve banking system based on fiat. It's just so much harder to go the other way. And the other thing I'll say is that just because there is a theoretical better solution doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's not like there's some sort of omniscient third party that's going to say, okay, you know what, because this is a better solution, which it probably is. I think Zoltan's recommendation is a great one, but who's going to make the world adopt it? How do you jumpstart it, right? 
So I would argue that the USD is where it is because already the world has made a sort of decentralized decision that it is the cleanest dirty shirt. There really is no easy alternative. Will these other countries at the margins chip away? For sure. But, you know, I've been calling it the pariah party in a way, right? In that the unfriendlies to the US, like Russia, China, Iran, they can certainly wind up creating a trading block and trade amongst themselves. But then what? If oil is all you're talking about, it's still not enough to really move the needle on overall USD. So I can't really see how they can get away from the fiat system of the USD, not from a liquidity standpoint. And I would say that I see sort of the same problems with some of the commodity-based solutions, whether it's gold or Bitcoin, because I feel like with those stores of value, you're still only as good as your fiat on and off ramp, because we do live in a world of fiat. And Again, it's a lot easier to go off of the gold standard and go to a transition to a world of fiat. But once that genie is out of the bottle to kind of stuff it back in, I'm not sure how it happens. I can't. I really can't see how it happens. So, Mike, let, let me ask you then, because your commodity butterfly thesis obviously pushes for dramatically strengthening commodity prices, and, and as you say, a structural bull market in oil, a similar situation in commodities, and so you know to have that happen plus a strong dollar. You know, that's a yeah. very tricky world for an awful lot of people. Yes, yes. That's and that's precisely why I've been calling it the USD wrecking ball, right? So like for in the past, you know, there there was this inverse correlation between, you know, the dollar and oil prices for instance, right? But for a number of reasons, one of which is the US becoming a significant exporter of oil, not only has that inverse correlation broken down, I would say that it's now the case that oil is the tail that's wagging the USD dog right now, right? It's precisely because of commodity price inflation that is creating a hawkish Fed that in turn is creating a strong dollar. And that presents, as you say, presents serious problems for especially emerging market economies that are big net importers of commodities. And the biggest frailty I see is actually China. This, again, this is a, we're, we're kind of on a tricky thing here, of, not an inflection point, but based on every, everything you said, and, and I think what people know is it is a fact that the euro and the yen, the two biggest choices, are inferior to the dollar for a whole group of reasons. We could talk about the natural effects that you did already, or we could talk about where the, where their central banks are, all of that. And I think those flaws are big enough such that even the things that we just did that is going to cause people to think twice about maybe holding dollars, that isn't enough to make them want to hold the other two currencies I just mentioned. Bingo. Yep. So I think I think what it really is, is it's going to precipitate amongst maybe wealthy people that are, you know, on the fringe or whatever, or these governments that are in gray area. It's going to precipitate a hunt for some other way to do something with some of your money, I think. I mean, it, these things aren't enough to make the yen attractive given what they're doing or the euro, but I think 
I mean, if you're India, what are you going to do, for instance? There's a lot of people there, right? Are they going to be as comfortable only than dollar? Well, probably not. But are they going to turn around and buy yen or euros just because of it? I don't know. It's it's not clear. I don't think these problems with the dollar currently are enough to drink the other currencies pretty, but they're serious enough to, for, to give a certain group of people who might own dollars a pause to maybe find something else to do. Yeah. And what is that something else to do? I mean, I think about this problem all the time. And here's another thing that I've been thinking about with respect to that, that unfortunately kind of, it doesn't present any alternatives. It it kind of comes back to the central thesis that again, there isn't really a great alternative. And that's this notion of, you know, what's happening to our yield curve, right? We've had this there's been a lot of attention on, you know, the twos to tens inversion, all this stuff, right? And I've been tweeting out in the last several weeks that I don't really understand how that is a credible signal given the amount of rate suppression further down the curve, right? It's not as if we entered this COVID policy with like a huge amount of cushion at the front end. The rates have been at zero bound for quite some time. So most of the monetary stimulus has come at the longer end. So I've been saying that the real rug pull for a lot of risk assets is going to be kind of like a bearish steepening in our yield curve. Well, a bearish steepening in our yield curve, ironically, I think is going to wind up sucking liquidity from other countries. As our Fed untethers the longer-term risk-free rates here, it's also going to make our bonds finally more attractive as yield vehicles, right? Whereas they've been artificially suppressed for so long. So that's yet another reason why I feel like just all of these factors that are arising from our unwinding of monetary stimulus and QE are going to wind up sucking liquidity from the other parts of the world where you know there are still negative yields for bonds in some places, right? So it doesn't answer your question as to what the alternative is. It's just well, bolstering I, my yeah, argument. I, I, I don't think the answer is, is. I don't think the answer is at all obvious. I mean. For me, I would make a choice in precious metals for some portion of what I was doing because I could make all give my reason. I'm not trying to convince anyone. I'm just saying other people might make other choices, but I'm just saying the choices that will probably be made at the margin are liable to be maybe non-paper assets, you know, like what I just talked about. And, you know, some people, maybe they'll buy crypto. I don't know because Grant knows I'm going to go there. So I'm just going to get it over. Oh, with. yeah. Only a matter of time. (laughs) So let's talk about the yen for a second, because the sucking of liquidity and what you just mentioned about making our bonds, if the currency is going up and our yields are higher than everyone else, that is going to attract at least hot money, if not serious money, for sure. I mean, it's just despite all the other cross currents we talked about. And so now here we have in Japan where, you know, where the Japanese actually kind of won with their monetization of you know, half of their debt, more or less, or maybe more. And, but instead of like declaring victory and moving on, now they've doubled down. Oh, they put the line in the sand that we're going to hold 25 beeps and keep monetizing at a moment in time where the yen's fallen out of bed. Things that they are going to have to import are going up in price. So they, they, they're not going to be able to avoid a certain amount of inflation. 
obviously the yen's just gone straight down for a month or so, so maybe it will bounce. But after we get through this bit of chop, what's going to happen? Is the FX going to market going to say to the BOJ, nope, you can't monetize this anymore, or we're really going to destroy the yen, or he says go ahead? I mean, it seems to me we're coming up to a very important moment in time in Japan in the greater idea of how far can central banks monetize things without getting into trouble? And for the Japanese, if they see the yen on the precipice, I would think that USD and, and treasuries would be attract, quite attractive to them. I would think so. So I haven't done the deep dive on Japan as you have probably, but Japan is a further reason why I feel that the CNY strength that some folks like to talk about as if it were some measure of credibility, I discount that and say that that is a total facade because in my dollar wrecking ball world tour, I went around the world to kind of show that just about every single fiat currency that is freely floating, you're seeing this dollar relative strength happen over the last in some cases, several months, in many cases, several years. But the only notable exception to that rule was the CNY, right? But the CNY is not a freely floating currency. And so I think it really doesn't hold water that, you know, a country that is short, every OPEX commodity under the sun, right, is strengthening against the US dollar. And Japanese yen falling off a cliff ain't helping their cause. So I think the PBOC is really, really stuck. You think they're going to devalue? I think they're either going to have to devalue or they're going to just wind up leading a lot of reserves. I think at least with the yen, even though they are experiencing inflation, it's kind of what needs to happen. China, though, is really, really stuck because you know, they're battling at first it was just Evergrande. And I, I wrote this thread, it was before any of these like Shanghai lockdowns, right? It was just, I, I just observed that, look, Evergrande, at one point, people thought that this might be like, you know, China's version of Lehman, right? And just forestalling that situation and still trying to keep up this facade of five and a half percent GDP growth would require a lot of monetary easing. But now, They've got this ridiculous zero COVID policy from which there really is no exit strategy. And it's just ironic that, you know, what was lauded initially as, oh, look, everybody look at how the Chinese autocratic system has been able to like conquer COVID and how poorly the West has done. It's really ironic because now it's kind of like, you know, going past the event horizon. There literally is no exit strategy from that. And the PBOC is stuck between trying to figure out whether or not they would rather bleed reserves and keep defending the CNY or just, you know, bite the bullet, devalue. But then if they devalue, they're going to have a big inflation problem, right? Because they are naturally short everything under the sun. Michael, let, let me ask you about the other side of this, because, you know, we're talking about the dollar, we're talking about rates, um, and the effect that the rates will have on the bond market, the effect the rates will have on the dollar. But there's another side to that, and that's the effect that higher rates will have on the real economy, will have on the housing market, will have on 
corporate debt markets. And you know, and they seem to be struggling right now with this idea. Now that more and more people are getting comfortable that the Fed is serious this time, you know, the equity market still believes that the Fed put is there. The bond market is telling you it may well be there, but it's not where you think it is. So you're going to have on the one side, you are going to have the positive effects we've talked about. But on the other side, domestically, you're going to have an awful lot of problems created by higher rates. How do you see that half of this equation pulling against the other? I'm very worried about it because, look, a while ago I wrote <laughs> a tweet saying, look, this is one toxic brew that we have, right? On the one hand, we've got a stagflationary setup that we haven't seen since the 70s. We've got a strong dollar dynamic that's wreaking havoc with emerging markets, reminiscent of 97, 98. And on top of that, we have an everything bubble in every single asset class, not just equities, but real estate, art, crypto, what have you, and everything bubble on top of that. And then now we have a war on top of that. So it is a nasty brew. And as you say, I'm perplexed at uh, how well the equity markets have continued to hold up, quite frankly. And you know, it's, I, I think ironically, the equity markets were being held up by this notion that this twos tens inversion was somehow indicative that the Fed would start embarking on QE somehow before QT even started, which I just I find that the whole notion of that argument preposterous. Well, you know, the equity market held up quite well for a while when the when uh, COVID first started, and then there was quite a panic. So it seems to me that you know the equity market when you allow for the amount of passive inflows and uh, structured products and things like that. It seems to take a little bit extra to get the market to head south. But it seems to me if it, if it were to, or I th think it's quite likely that it will, uh, it'll probably pick up steam and then we'll have one of these, oh, it went slowly at first, then all at once it broke pretty hard. You know, I think that's- Exactly. Like I mean, an, you know, animal spirits are hard to break, right? When, you know, this buy the fucking dip mentality has been in place <laughs> for so long. And you know, I've been saying, I, I think the transition from buy the fucking dip to sell the fucking rip mentality is going to be a long, nasty, nasty process. And that Fed put, it probably is still there at some price, but I would argue it's been restruck much, much lower. And um, the tricky thing here is, again, the structural inflation I'm talking about, because I think it's going to take a lot bigger of a recession or even like a depression to really kind of demand destruct our way out of it. Oh, here, here's the other thing I wanted to observe. Unlike several of the uh, last oil bull markets in recent history, like for instance, back in you know the 07 period, right, where oil spiked to like 140, you have an almost, I call it an everything inflation now in terms of commodities, right? Where there's not much I mean, look at natural gas hitting seven now. You don't have much of a substitution effect, even, right? You could before you could say, oh, okay, well, you know, holding all things constant, you know, there's you, people are going to substitute away from you know internal combustion engines to EVs. Well, you've got lithium prices up eight hundred percent. You've got natural gas at seven. Natural gas and coal are still the primary ways in which you're charging your EVs. So. You can't substitute your way out of this. The only way is to demand destruct your way out of it. 
And that's the difference between OPEX commodities and CAPEX commodities. CAPEX commodities, like uh, you could argue, like, for instance, like copper and steel, well, those are discretionary CAPEX items where if you experience even a relatively mild recession, uh, you, can, you can opt to not build those new homes, right? But when you're talking about OPEX, like food and energy, we're not going to go back to riding bikes and you can't not eat, even though, you know, I, I laugh that there's still like a CPI X food and energy. Right. Why? Yeah. <laughs> just, what is the point of that? on that one? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, it's just crazy. Well, you know, <laughs> one related topic that is one of my other hobby horses, but hasn't really been appropriate until now. I, I think I, I'd like to ask you, and Grant, you and I haven't even talked about this, I don't think. You know, we always talk about the common nomenclature is, well, the bond market is priced this many Fed hikes in. And the frame of reference is the Fed has all this credibility and the market is doing what the Fed wants. Wink, wink. The, the market is doing the Fed's bidding. But actually, the reality of the situation is the Fed hasn't done shit. They've given us 25 beeps, a whole lot of verbiage. Promise to do something yeah. down the road. I'm not even sure QE's actually ended actually yet. But and yet, so what's really happened is the Fed's done right, nothing. And, and, and people are already, and people are already talking about you know oh the uh, the end of QT. So 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 <laughs> the, the the Fed's but basically done nothing, and the bond market has said we're backing up, and everyone attributes the backup to this is what the Fed wants. Whereas I could make the narrative, the bond market has said, screw you to the Fed. We don't want to buy bonds at this price. We want to sell bonds at this price. We are pricing in more inflation than the Fed is willing to deal with. And the reason I bring up this distinction is because the narrative I just described is one where the Fed has actually lost credibility and they're still being deemed to be the credible player when in fact... The Fed hasn't made any hard decisions vis-a-vis tightening and dealing with inflation or any problems since Volcker, really, because after the first equity bubble, they came in, you know, they blamed everything on 9-11 when the when implosion was already underway. Then we had the real estate bubble and we, you know, started QE and now we do. All they ever really do that's heroic is print money. So I just wonder... Why do you think it is that there's not a more negative slant on the Fed since they've been so wrong? Like everyone's willing to goof on Corota now and and Lagarde, but nobody really kind of goofs on the Fed much. <laughs> that, that's a that's a really that's a really good question. I don't have a good answer for it. I mean, I do think part of the reason why I've been calling for a bearish steepening in the yield curve is that at some point the Fed is going to be forced to let the longer part of the yield curve untether, basically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And frankly, that is the more elegant way to prick asset bubbles without shooting yourself in your foot, so to speak, because of you know our own interest obligations. So I really think that this bearish steepening is going to be sort of the the moment where, you know, some people are still calling for YCC. I just don't get it. I, I see the exact opposite happening. I see basically the Fed allowing 
longer-term risk-free rates to actually price discover for a change. And that's going to create some pain uh, across a lot of different asset classes. That way they kind of administer the pain to Wall Street as opposed to Main Street so much because they, they, they don't put so much pressure on the short end of the curve? That's kind of how I'm thinking about it. That's kind of how I'm thinking about it because for the last several economic crises, every economic crisis has been papered over with essentially QE, and that's totally inured to the benefit of holders of assets, right? Which are typically the top 1%, right? But now you've got a situation where the OPEX commodity inflation is disproportionately hitting the 99%, just from a standpoint of percentage of you know, allocable income. Right, uh, you know, gas bills, food bills are really disproportionately hitting the poor, and so I think the Overton window has really, really shifted away from protecting the assets of the one percent versus, you know, trying to do something for the opex inflation of the ninety-nine percent, and that is the scary thing for asset owners. Right, I put out a tweet today. I said, I feel like every election in the foreseeable future around the world is going to be characterized by politicians who are going to try to one up each other on who can be more hawkish on inflation. Ponder that. But, it, but it, Mike, you know, it, it's also a question, it seems to me, of who can promise to stick it to the rich more. You know, to your point, what needs to happen here is a, a controlled reallocation of wealth from the 1% to the 99% to a level that both sides can be comfortable with, right? That's that's really what needs to happen here. And you know, we saw we saw Biden's billionaire tax for people with a hundred million dollars or more. You know, which I thought was just a fantastic piece of politicking. You know, we'll call it billionaires tax. Right. We'll go after right. people with a hundred million. Uh, who, who's going to know? You know <laughs> right. A zero here, a zero there. What's the matter? Just exactly. What's the difference? But that, but that you know that feels like what needs to happen. To your point, I, mean, I think you're absolutely right. But how do you do that? How do you perform that controlled demolition. And you can see this in Fed speeches at various lunches for the last several months is we're desperately trying to convince the market that we are going to let asset prices fall, but 20, 30% and, you know, nice, nice wink, wink, you can give that up. You've had a good run. But the more this inflation butterfly, and I want to come back to that point you made because it's it's I think it's so important. And you've over this the course of your thread and, and past it, you've you've thrown up all kinds of charts looking at PPI. I mean, you know, input prices in Europe are at insane levels. So this is really starting to hurt people now. And I think more importantly for central bankers, the mindset is becoming entrenched. You know, transitory, no one even remembers that word now. The the expectations for inflation are getting And how and how quickly that Overton window shifted, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very quickly. So, so you know, how can you manage a controlled demolition like this? Is it possible, do you think? Or, or if not, where does the stress get felt? Because we've got midterms coming up, and so it would behoove the government to make asset holders feel the stress and really be hawkish and actually do something about trying to lower inflation. Because, listen, the letters are going to start hitting the doormats of congressmen and senators daily uh, from here on in, I suspect. Well, this is this is where I think that that bearish steepening scenario is potentially the biggest rug pull for asset right. markets, um, especially for what I'll call longer duration assets. So a while ago, I wrote this uh, 
other thread thinking about financial assets or high duration assets as inflation capacitors. And so the mental model goes something like this, right? So if you've got a basic electrical circuit where you've got a battery powering like a light bulb, the battery might be considered the Fed, you know, liquidity, right? And you introduce something called a capacitor to it. What a capacitor does is it's almost like a water tower. It basically stores excess liquidity until there is a short circuit introduced into that circuit that basically allows a discharge of that extra potential that's built up. And so I think that high duration assets and I'll include, you know, high, you know, high multiple tech stocks, I'll include crypto and that that's probably controversial, but I'll include crypto in there because of the lack of cash flows. I think of them as inflation capacitors. And if you talk about what asset classes get disproportionately hit, I think it's the high, those, those inflation capacitors that discharge when you, you now have a potential bearish steepening in the yield curve, which is the short circuit in that mental model. You follow? To have that you know, bear steepener really work or really come off, doesn't the treasury need to kind of be huddled up on this and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to sell more longer dated paper? Because the Fed doesn't own that much longer dated paper vis-a-vis the whole mix. Now, I guess they could start out and saying, look, let's sell all the longer dated paper we have first. I don't know that it matters precisely, but do you, have you thought about how that would come about? I mean, literally the opposite of Operation Twist, right? right. I mean, it, right. I've, I've always wondered why it is, you know, why shouldn't we float a 50-year bond, right? Why shouldn't we, you know, refinance and term out our maturities, right? And that's the real test is whether or not that yield curve is real. And, and if so, what better way to test it? I think that would solve a lot of our problems. The other interesting thing to think about that we haven't talked about yet is the notion of demographics, right? Because I I do think that the retirement of the baby boomers is going to naturally reallocate liquidity from risky assets to less risky assets. So I wonder whether or not that creates a structural bid for longer durations here, just like it did for the Japanese, right? So I feel like if our yield curve can support, I mean, right now, the 30-year is pegged at 2.9%. I'm still not convinced that that's a truly market-determined yield. But if it is, shit, we should, (laughs) the the federal government should be terming out its maturities at the long end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they should have been doing that all along, but that's another story. They should have been doing that, yeah. yeah. So should the, you know, anyway, but yeah. Michael, let, let's talk, the, the, the subject of gold's come up kind of tangentially through this, and you've written before, making a great point about the fact that anything that can be hoarded can easily be manipulated, which is such a great point that doesn't often get discussed. Talk about assets like gold, talk about commodities, because when, when, we're, when we're looking for solutions to how to diversify out of dollars, obviously these input commodities make sense to diversify some of your dollars and and stockpile the commodities you're going to need. But you know, I thought that point was a really interesting one. Can you expand upon it for me? 
Yeah. So I, I actually didn't even put this in a thread yet, but like I, I'm thinking about writing a thread about that because see, my issue with the notion of Bitcoin or of gold being lauded as a quote neutral reserve currency is the issue that there's nothing that's truly a neutral reserve currency because different countries are endowed differently, right? I mean, there are certain countries that are naturally endowed with you know, gold deposits and others that aren't. And then not only that, these are commodities that can be hoarded and stored. So why would the world naturally choose a commodity that can you know, if you if you take Bitcoin as an extreme example of what could happen to gold, right? You've got a relatively small cadre of early adopters that have massively benefited disproportionately. And so why would the rest of the world want to be sort of like the patsy here and give liquidity to the early adopter whales, right? And so I I think that that argument kind of is applicable to gold to a lesser extent because, you know, gold obviously has been a monetary store for eons. But, you know, the arguments for why, you know, now because of the weaponization of the USD, gold is going to 10,000 or 20,000, I'm not really seeing that. I I don't know why any central bank would necessarily want to do that. I do feel that, again, back to this argument of, you know, once you've opened Pandora's box and demonetized gold and gone to a world that is dependent on, you know, fractional reserve banking in the world of fiat, it's very, very difficult to stuff the genie back into the bottle. I'm not sure how how you can do it. We might have a situation where, uh, like we were talking earlier, I don't see how gold can be the be-all and end-all like some people want to believe with the really big numbers that you just threw out that you know people come up with. It could be that it's just a it's just a, a partial solution for part of what you do because yeah. you can't you can't go whole hog that way. It's 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 like you know we talked about. There's all these flawed currencies. The USD is still best, but if they're going to steal mine. Or if I have to worry about it, worry about them stealing mine, I got to do something else. At least, are you going to invade a? Are you going to invade a country, Bill? I can't tell you. It's I'm, you know, <laughs> I got to huddle with my he, team. You know, uh, he so, could cross the Nevada border any day now. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it seems to me that um, that that you know that, that pe- people are certainly going to be grasping for things that, to do, and and I don't know that there's a universal answer. There may be a. Uh, a handful of things that one group will pick and another group, another group will pick other handful of things. I, I don't think some grand, aha, all of this means blah, blah, blah. I, I don't think that's a, that's a, that's a statement we, that we can make. Uh, it doesn't seem no, to me. But, but, you know, it's interesting that two things have happened in the last couple of weeks and we've seen Egypt buy 47 tons of gold, which is a huge purchase for them. You know, a country that are very susceptible to food price inflation. They've gone and bought a, a boatload of gold. And Australia, of all people, are now talking about having their gold audited. And, yeah, what do you think you know, about returned, that since you're returned to, Well, look, let's face it. There is, I mean, apart from short-term liquidity, and it's not like the Aussies trade their gold around, there's no need for you to store 
a sovereign asset like gold in a foreign country. There's just no reason for it, right? You might want to have some at the LBMA or some at the COMEX just in case, but when was the last time they sold any of their gold? So, you know, the fact that these things are happening now post the Russian central bank sanctions, to me, and I could be completely wrong on misreading the tea leaves, it's perfectly possible, but it seems as though people are reconsidering their position in reserves constituents. And that, I suspect, means a, a bigger allocation of gold. It certainly means why run the risk of having your reserves under someone else's control if they can arbitrarily be confiscated, no matter who you are. The fact that Australia's doing this, I found very interesting. But I, I just think it's clear that there are shifts taking place right now. And that, to me, comes with the end of a you know 40-year deflationary trend to what I think Michael is absolutely correct about, and that's the fact that this commodity butterfly has only just started flapping its wings. And I don't think this inflation cycle is going to peak out now and then moderate. I just, I just don't see that happening. And I, and I get what people are saying, and, and, I, and I read the commentaries that people are saying, well, this should be the peaking now and, and, and inflation will moderate. I just don't see it, given what's happening in the world right now. I, I just struggle to see how... Assets like gold, food assets, commodity assets don't need to be secured by countries to, even if it's just to deal with the, the, the reversal of globalization. And, and I think that makes Michael's theory just that more ironclad in my book. I will say, though, going back to this notion of what's an what's a inflation capacitor and what's an inflation crucible, right? Inflation crucible would obviously be things like oil. Uh, OPEX commodities, gold, maybe. Um, inflation capacitors would basically be those asset classes where liquidity drains out uh, in, to those inflation crucibles. Um, that's been my, my theory, but the Russia-Ukraine situation, I have to say, is flummoxing me even on that part of the equation because there's this notion of whether or not supply destruction is going to outweigh the demand destruction. Both are clearly happening as a result of this war. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, it, it definitely, you know, going be before this, I thought I had a fairly solid base case that, you know, even with my relatively conservative views of uh, OPEC spare capacity and whatnot, I thought that by the end of 2023, OPEC spare capacity would get severely, severely tested. I'm not sure right now what this Russia-Ukraine situation is going to do. It doesn't change my longer-term view, but it definitely obfuscates the nearer-term view because I could see a situation where, you know, in 2023, where you actually have some resolution. The bearish situation for oil would be that you've got a uh, desperate administration trying to revive JCPOA, going to Venezuela, getting additional sources of supply online, and then the Russia-Ukraine situation eventually resolving itself. And, you know, the strong dollar situation creating you know, a recessionary impulse, especially in emerging markets, right? But the opposite side of that is 
you know, this Russia-Ukraine situation could, I mean, we haven't seen it yet, but it, you could see a situation where Russia, we haven't even seen their energy sector sanctioned yet. It's technically been carved out and there's been a lot of, you know, hooing and hawing about self-sanctions and lack of insurance, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is Russian oil has not stopped flowing. That may change in the coming weeks to months. And if and when that happens, then you have a whole host of issues, right? Because Russia has very, very little storage capacity. If they wind up shutting in, there is the prospect of long-term supply destruction that you just cannot, I mean, not even JCPOA, Venezuela, there's literally no force on earth that's going to be able to coax out enough oil in that scenario. So we basically we we basically have to revisit this topic in say six months or a year to see how it plays out because if if those Siberian oil fields start to get shut in, then it's a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different ballgame, and we just don't know right now what's going to happen. I mean, I, I I you know just when you think that's that's what I I guess that's what I love and hate about financial markets, right? Like <laughs> it's such a humbling task, mistress, and just when you think you got something figured out, you get thrown a total curveball. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Michael, it's, it's a bit of a clunking gear change, but I, I can't let you go without asking you one last question, and that's about um, microstrategy, because it, it's a topic I'm oh, fascinated yeah. by. I'm, I'm just fascinated by it, and it, it's very easy to find people talking about the one side of it, the pro side of it, right? I, I don't understand much of the language, if I'm honest with you. I don't really understand a lot of things that I say about it. But you've, I think, better than anybody, chronicled the reality of the situation. So I'd love to just get you to kind of run through that because I say I'm endlessly fascinated with, with this whole thing. It just, it just boggles my mind on a daily basis. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, well, one thing I'll say about Michael Saylor is that he's definitely put his money where his mouth is, but unfortunately (laughs) he's, he's also forced uh, all of his shareholders into that worldview. And it's not clear to me that uh, a CEO should be making those capital reallocation decisions in that way. But the bottom line is this, right? He's raised two convertible issues, which total, let me see, I need to pull this up. But I think uh, the first one, if I'm not mistaken, was around $500 million. The second convert was around $1 billion. And then on top of that, once he exhausted his convertible issuance capacity, he raised another, I believe it was like $600 million of a senior secured deal secured by his software business. And then on top of that, he now did, a, uh, I think, a $200 million private loan that was secured by Bitcoin, right? So, I mean, you talk about a very, very one-sided bet which is not just exchanging a zero vol asset, which is cash, for a hundred vol, what I'll call inflation capacitor asset, but he's massively levered up his capital structure uh, to do that. And on top of that, I think he's, where I think um, he's made a big mistake is he has boxed himself in rhetorically by saying that basically any excess cash flow will always be used to buy more and more Bitcoin. And to me, that's just, you know, artificially limiting your optionality, right? Because 
I haven't checked where the converts are trading now, but given how many times they've been primed and pressed down the capital stack by these subsequent debt issues, I believe the converts are trading either in the mid 60s or low 70s. Um, and I just, you know, I, just if he, it, I just looked for yeah, you. Sorry. I just looked for you. Uh, uh, one of them is trading around 70 ish. I don't know how thin uh-huh. the market is. And the other's in the low 90s. Got it. So the 71 is the way out of the money one. And so if he hadn't boxed himself rhetorically, I would say that, you know, this is an incredible opportunity for him to, you know, you could actually just buy those bonds back, right? You know, and they're massively out of the money and, uh, you know, wind up uh, having like a big gain on those bonds. But he won't do that. Um, he's just going to use it to buy more and more Bitcoin. So, you know, I have no skin in the game on this one, but as, as I keep saying, I just want to write the uh, HBS case study someday to see how this one plays out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, you, you'll have no shortage of co-authors, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's fascinating, right? I mean, it's, especially when you think of that, the first thread I wrote about this was just thinking about it from like a Merton uh, real options framework because you can model a company's stock as essentially a call option on the firm's assets and you can model a bond as short a put option on the firm's assets. And even though that is from the standpoint of the investor, it's still, I would argue, given how the CEO's incentives are exactly the same as the investor, it's consistent, right? He's effectively embedded a massive cascade of short puts into his capital structure is what I'm, is what I'm saying. Right. Right. Well, listen, it's only one of the fascinating things we all have to, but as you say, trying to figure this stuff out just gets harder every day, but you know what? It, it continues to be fascinating. And Bill and I are so fortunate to have uh, guys like you give time out of your day to come and talk to us about this stuff. And we, we really appreciate it, Michael. So Thank you from both of us. And listen, before you go, just for anyone that's not following you, let them know how they can do that because I say your threads are absolutely epic every time you put one out. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm Thank you so much. Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't uh, sell any newsletters or anything like that. I'm just a citizen on Twitter at Urban Cowboy with a K-A-O. Um, and that's it. <laughs> Doing the Lord's work, my friend. Michael, thank you so much for, for doing this with us. It's been, it's been a lot thank of fun. Thank you. Thanks, Grant, Bill. Appreciate All it. Right. Take care. Really fun. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> right. Bye-bye. Well, mate, uh, every bit as much fun as I expected, every bit as thought-provoking as I expected, that was, uh, that was just a good time. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was it was fun. It was just like it was it was a great conversation, and uh, it'll be fun to to look at all of this in say six to twelve months. You know, particularly because the the war in Ukraine, as Michael pointed out near the end, is going to have an impact on the supply of oil and natural gas, which feeds back into everything. So, and if those Siberian oil fields uh, get backed up, it's going to be a wild it's going to be a wild period. So, we'll need to come back to this topic sometime down the road. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in that conversation to come back to. The, the, the commodity stuff, I think, is fascinating. The capacitor idea, I've been thinking about it since I first read it, and it's just such a great framework to think about this stuff. You know, as I said, so much so much to take away from that and, and so much to revisit. And our, our thanks and gratitude go to Michael Cow for joining us. Mate, that's it for another Endgame. Um, All right. Thanks for joining us out there. For those of you listening, if you want to follow what we're doing in the meantime, you can follow Fleck on Twitter. You'll find him at FleckCap. 
he's still there. He's still there, hanging on for grim death. And you can find me if you're not finding me already at TTMYGH. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back with another end game soon. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.